We are in this series called Life Under a Sun. It is a fly-through, actually, if you know what our normal pace is. We're actually flying through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 9 today, and while you're opening up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, can I encourage you to all get your Bibles out? If you brought your phone, open it up to a uh, Bible app. Get the one in front of you out uh, that's in the back of that pew, pew. I think it's page 557, right around there. And while you're doing that, let me tell you about a song by the band Nine Inch Nails. Now, some of you actually might like this band. Um, I know one person, two people here that I'm looking at right now that I know are very familiar with them. They've got a song called Terrible Lies. It was number two track, second track on their first album. It begins like this. I want you to hear. You can see the lyrics on the screen. Why are you doing this to me? Am I not living up to what I'm supposed to be? Why am I seething with this animosity? Hey, God, I think you owe me a great big apology. Terrible lie. I really don't know what you mean. Seems like salvation comes only in our dreams. I feel my hatred grow all the more extreme. Hey, God, can this world really be as sad as it seems? Terrible lie. You know, that song resonated with a massive audience. And what that tells you and what it shows to me is that there are a great number of people that are struggling to make sense of this world. And unfortunately, God often gets the blame. Now, why I'm bringing these song lyrics to you is I want you to see what pulses through the thinking of the world. So that you can begin to understand you actually probably struggle with some of these things as well. And if you're struggling with them, and you call yourself a Christian, imagine what those who want nothing to do with the Lord are struggling with, with this life that has so many twists and turns, so much pain. See, this is why Ecclesiastes is so relevant today. It is brutally honest. It is raw. It is one of the most honest and raw books in the Bible. I think I'm really going to enjoy talking to Solomon in heaven. I really am. He's the author. He's struggling. Listen, if you're varnishing this and you're saying, oh, this is just a light and momentary struggle, you do not understand Solomon. You really don't understand the book yet. He is massively struggling. With what? To make sense out of this world. And chapter 9 begins to offer some very wise help for us as we live this life under the sun. So here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, what he had just written previously at the end of chapter 8. There are no chapter divisions in the original. Just one thought streaming out of the other. Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And that just sounds weird. What on earth is he talking about? Well, I'm only going to give you really two points. I'm going to really unpack the first one pretty extensively, a little quicker in the second one. Here's the first one, and then we'll go back through and make sense of what he wrote. Trust God with your tomorrow. Now, this is, this is huge. I'm going to tell you right now, including me, that most of us in this room do not do this very well. We do not do... If you struggle with anxiety, if you frequently struggle with hopelessness, 
then your future reigns very important to you, and there's a trust deficit going on. Anxiety is future fear. It is fear of the future. It's not fear of the past, not even of the present. It's what might happen. So trust God with your tomorrow is really sage advice for, for many of us, I think most of us. And what he begins to tell us is this. Now, you need this as an underpinning of your faith. Now, Christian, I want you to really look at me for a moment, and I want you to get ready to pile or uh, pound these anchor lines down into the tent of your mind. What I'm going to teach you, what Solomon is teaching us, is an anchor for you. The lives of the righteous, if you are a child of God, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a righteous man or a righteous woman. The, the lives of the righteous are held in God's sovereign hand. Yet throughout Ecclesiastes, we are exhorted to make wise choices in life. So we've got the tension between a sovereign God who appoints all of our times and all of our seasons into their appropriate places, and the tension is made tight because we've got all these exhortations, and virtually every exhortation in the entire Bible is a proof that, yes, God is sovereign, but you still need to choose wisely. The point of Solomon is that none of us, in verse 1, none of us knows what our future life will be like. Listen, let's just get really, really clear and really honest. You do not know what's going to happen in one minute. Now, I'm going to be just really a little bit viscerally raw. There's a lot of churches that have been going on, and they've been having their services, and the worship's going, and the pastor's preaching. And a gunman comes in. Now, I'm very thankful we have a watchman's ministry here. There is always somebody right downstairs that's watching our entrance and watching where our children are. So we have that. But, but I know somebody twice, actually, two different people, while I was preaching, completely passed out, had to be carted to the, to the hospital in an ambulance. I don't think it was entirely due to my preaching. You don't know what's going to happen in 30 seconds. And what Solomon is saying is that none of us knows what our future will be like. Only God knows, now here's what he means, the love or hate, look at verse 1, the meaning the good times or the evil times that lie ahead of you. And the ultimate evil, the ultimate evil day is the day of your death. You do not know, I don't either, what day that's going to be. It could be tonight. It could be in 50 years. Well, he begins to bring this out in verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. What is that event? Well, he's going to tell you. And to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. That event is death. And the righteous die, the unrighteous die. The wicked die, the people that are really good are going to die. It's an event that is common to everyone every human being. And the reason that Solomon calls this an evil event is because it's an alien presence in God's creation. It's not part of his original design. I don't know if you're familiar with the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. That was really actually brilliantly written and drawn. 
Calvin, if you remember, Calvin is a young boy with a stuffed tiger named Hobbes that comes alive in his imagination. And the two of them are walking along. And by the way, you can Google this and you can find this. It's all over the internet. The two of them find a baby raccoon that is barely alive. And Calvin runs to get his mom. And Hobbes said to him, before he ran off to get his mom, I sure hope she can help. And Calvin responds a lot like most little boys would. Of course she can. You don't get to be a mom if you can't fix everything just right. So he goes and he finds his mom and mom comes back and she sees the raccoon. And mom's dads, they know, she knew the raccoon's likely going to die. Yet because her son's earnestness, she brings it home to care for it. They put him in a little cardboard box. Before Calvin goes to bed that night, he, he leaned and he peeked over that cardboard box and he pulled the flap back and he whispered to that little raccoon, don't die, little raccoon. Now, so far, it's a very poignant, very powerful little comic. And when he wakes in the morning, he runs to the garage to check on the, the raccoon, but his father intercepts him and he tells him, Calvin, I'm sorry, <clears throat> the raccoon died overnight. And Calvin cries and cries, and after they bury it, he said, I didn't even know he existed a few days ago, and now he's gone forever. And then the last scene of the comic strip is Calvin and Hobbes, they're walking away from after, after burying the raccoon with his family, and Calvin says to his imaginary tiger, what a stupid world. I mean, have you felt like this? Death is alien. It should not feel like a welcome guest in anybody's life. He's right. It's a stupid world. Death is not supposed to be. So why is it? Whose fault is it? Well, Solomon answers that in verse 3. Look what he says. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. They go to the grave. He calls Sheol. You know, what he's saying is this, and I hope that you can connect death with this. It's very important that you do. It's what gives us the, the motivation to speak and preach and teach the gospel, good news. The fault for death is you, and the fault for death is me. The evil and the madness of sin resides in all of our hearts. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, madness is one of the most appropriate ways to describe sin because to defy God who created us and only has love in mind for us, our very best life in mind for us, to defy that God is crazy. It's madness. It's insane. And to turn away from our sovereign creator and, and try to control our own happiness, which is at the root of every sin, it only ends in failure and disappointment every single time. If that's not madness, I don't know a better way to define it. Now, I could personalize this for all of us, I think, fairly easily. So let me try to do that. You ready? Did you defy God this week? Now, it is possible, and I've sat in a lot of sermons, to let the pastor's questions sort of 
deflect off of the shield of your heart. Can I encourage you maybe to let these questions come in and bounce around a little bit? Did you defy God this week? I mean, can you literally recall defying God this week? Did you vent your anger with unkind words? Did you covet anything that belonged to another person? Did you speak in a way that defamed somebody else, that dishonored them, that slandered them? Did you put off until later what you were asked to do now? Do you understand that's all sin? But let's go a little bit deeper. Let's get beyond behavior because we too unfairly and too narrowly defined sin as doing the things we ought not to do and not doing the things we should have done. That's really not a good definition of sin. A better definition of sin is where is it springing from. And to get there, you got to go to the heart. you got to go deeper. So if your heart was unzipped by the Lord himself, he unzipped it and he opened it up, would there be visible disrespect or dishonor for somebody that's in authority of your life? Was there a lack of trusting God Wednesday morning, perhaps, after the election results were in? Was there any grumbling or discontent in you this last week? That's all in a problem that pulses from a heart that does not like the way God is ruling. Is there unforgiveness or bitterness living in the basement of your heart? Was there in you at all times a desire springing forth behavior that brought glory and fame and honor to your God? Was that even a conscious mindset of you this last week? Now, there are some here right now, I'm sure, whose eyes, they just don't see like that. They don't really think like I'm trying to get you to think. So let me invert things a little bit. Let me tip it on its head with a few more questions. Did you withhold love for a coworker, schoolmate, or a boss this week, or a sibling? If you saw a person in need, did you respond in generosity? Did you at all times have an attitude of honor towards your parents this week? Did your words only build others up according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear? Even if it was constructive criticism, it came from a heart of love. I don't really think I need to go on, do I? We're all sinners. It's madness. Because it forfeits our joy, our satisfaction, and ultimately, to Solomon's point, It forfeits our life. It brings death. The reason death is in the world cannot be only put at Adam and Eve's feet. The wages of sin is death. Now, if I ended the sermon with an amen right here, we would all leave and likely not want to come back for a few weeks. We'd be so depressed. What a dour sermon. But Solomon doesn't leave us here. Look at verse 4. He gives us a glimmer of hope for all who are among the living. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now may I gently, carefully tell you that even the Bible gives evidence that dogs are better than cats. (laughs) Even big cats. 
You know, every time I say that, by the way, I really do get somebody upset. I, I had, I don't know, maybe a month and a half or two months ago, a similar example. And um, a lady came in a few weeks and said to me in the foyer of the church, you know, I was really upset at you. And she pulls out a pendant, a necklace with a cat figurine on it. And I said, I love cats. And I said, well, I love them too. They are made for the fires of hell. But anyways, moving on. <laughs> that, is, that is not true. Don't leave the church over this. The reality of this verse, though, really isn't about dogs and cats. It's about the, the, the very fact that in ancient Israel, dogs were not cute pets. That some people dress up in winter and spend thousands of dollars on with vets and pampering bills. That's not how they treated dogs. They were wild. They were considered scavengers, dogs were in Solomon's day. Not unlike how we view vultures today. They roamed free. They were all over the place. And the point that Solomon's making, I hope you hear this, is that even an immoral person characterized by a dog, it, still alive, is better than a godly saint that has died. Why? Because the living, even if you're immoral, you still have the opportunity to repent, to turn to God. But for the dead, it's too late. Now, that's really actually quite bracing. It ought to be, and I'm going to try to apply it for you. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I'm sure with this many people that are here, that there's some here that are investigating the Christian faith. There might be some that are self-deluded. They say, yeah, I've been in church all my life. I've got a great pedigree of a religious family. Or there might be some that are self-deceived, going, you know, I do a lot of good things. I'm a very good person. I get lots of people telling me that I'm a really good person, that they hope their kids grow up to be like you. That won't make you a Christian. That will not get you into heaven. The only thing that will save you from eternal damnation is faith in what Jesus did, not confidence in what you're doing. That's misplaced confidence if that's yours. So you might be here right now, and even right now, my words are opening your eyes a little bit. You're probably doing that familiar little bit of arguing. There's a bit of tension in your soul. I've experienced it. And if that's you, I, I need to tell you very lovingly, but very truthfully, you are not a Christian. If you are putting your confidence anywhere or in addition to Jesus Christ, it's not Jesus plus that makes you a Christian. That's, I don't trust Jesus, so I've got to add into it. That's not saving faith. And if that's you right now, you've got a chance to repent. This is why a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. You've got an opportunity to turn to Jesus yet. But for Solomon's words to really settle deeply into our hearts, we need to return back to verse 1. Can we do that again? The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's speaking to the saved. Speaking to the righteous. And when the Bible uses the phrase hand of God, it is referring to the sovereign, loving rule of God. I'll give you an example. My youngest child, Andy, when he was younger, uh, had to go get an immunization for school. And parents, we all know we don't like those visits, right? It hurts us just as much, I think, as it hurts them, although they wouldn't admit that. So I took him to the doctor, and we got into the examination room, and the nurse uh, asked who was going to give the shot, do you want to sit on your daddy's lap? And he said, yeah, I really would like to do that. So he sat on my lap. He was very nervous, on the edge of tears, 
just like I was at his age. So I held him, and I watched an amazing thing happen. I'd never seen it before like this. The nurse swabs his arm, and I asked her to wait a little bit because one of the nurses that gave me a shot one time that said, you know, part of the sting that you feel is the alcohol. So I said, can you just give him a few seconds? Just let that dry off a little bit. And so she did, and she was such a good nurse, such a kind nurse. She's holding the syringe. She's got her, his arm in her left hand. It's all ready to go. And she says, Andy, are you ready? And he goes, I've never heard one of my kids do this. He goes, no, not yet, not yet. Just give me another second. I just need another minute. So he's like doing deep breathing exercises, right? She still has his arm. She's got this hand with a syringe in it. She looks at me and winks and smiles and sticks the needle before he's ready into his arm and depresses the plunger and pulls it out. And right after she pulled it out, Andy said, okay, I'm ready now. Go ahead. (laughs) I said, Lord, you just answered my prayer. See, there is great comfort for our children when they're by their parents' side. There's such a strength given to them. So, child of God, can I ask you for a moment? You are a child. If you're a Christian, you're a daughter or a son of God. You're a brother or a sister of Jesus. What is there to fear? I mean, honestly, can I just ask you to think through that for a moment? What is there to fear? Can your soul receive the words of Jesus from John 10? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's what it means to be in the hand of God. You are safe. You're secure. So are you going through an exceedingly difficult time right now or recently? I'm sure many of you have. They're hard. Life is hard. It's painful. Listen, your Father in heaven has you in his hand. You are safe. And even if a hard thing happened to you, he is your comforter. He knew it was coming. He was with you when it happened. He will be with you all the days of your life. And if you're not now in a trial, Christian brother or sister, listen, you will be. So store this wisdom up now. Save it for the day you're going to need it. Your Father in heaven has you. It's going to be okay. Psalm 31, my times are in your hand, God. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. So trust God with your tomorrow. But there is more wisdom that Solomon would offer us, and it's point two, and I'm going to be a little bit more brief. Enjoy life with your today. Trust God for your tomorrow, but enjoy life for your, for your today. Now, before we read verse 7, have you heard of uh, Fatima Ali, top chef, discovered cancer? They thought they had it in remission, came back raging. I think 29 years old, told by her doctors she has a year to live. Here's what she said. To my knowledge, I don't think she's a Christian. I don't know. I don't think she is. She writes this, it's funny, isn't it? When we think we have all the time in the world to live, we forget to indulge in the experience of living. But when that choice is yanked away from us, that's when we scramble to feel. You know, that's been repeated over and over in different kinds of wordings, but that is a common, common experience. 
And she's likely right about that. But Solomon, now this is good news. Solomon tells us that we can begin to really live before you hear that you've got one year to live. And he begins to tell us, look at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God already approves what you do. This is the sixth time in the book of Ecclesiastes that he tells us to enjoy life. So eat good food. I mean, this is truly wise admonition. This is exhortation. This is a command. This is a prescription. This is, this is how you enjoy life. Go out and eat a good meal. Enjoy good drink. If you like wine, if you don't have a problem with that, well, then enjoy a glass of wine, always with sobriety. But celebrate life with your family. And Solomon is speaking to the righteous and the wise, to the Christian. And God, he's saying God approves of you. He's already given grace to you. He is your heavenly father. He wants you to enjoy life, even this crazy life under the sun. How do you do that? By trusting God with your tomorrow. If you can trust your God with your tomorrow, it frees you to begin to live life today. Now, let me reverse that. If you're not enjoying life today, almost always, inevitably and invariably, you're not trusting God with your tomorrow. Well, that's too simplistic, but it's true. So invite people over. Take somebody out to eat. Enjoy a glass of wine if that's your thing. But life takes on joyful meaning. Listen, when it is saturated with a God who loves your happiness. Did you know that God wants you happy? No, I don't mean cracking jokes in the midst of painful sorrow. That's not what happiness is. He wants you enjoying life. He gave it to you. It's a gift. And parents know the joy when their children are happy. We know how that makes us feel. And our Heavenly Father, has it ever dawned on you, feels the same way? Did you know that the Father feels joy when his children are happy? But Solomon goes on. Enjoy life with your today. Well, how do you do that? Well, let your garments be always white. Now, some of you aren't listening to that very well. I'm not listening at all, am I? I'm not wearing any white. That's not really what it means. That was the color Jewish people wore at their most joyful festivals. They wore white. Black was the color they wore at funerals. And slaves wore white in Israel the day that they were freed. War heroes in the ancient world wore white during their victory parades. White was the color of celebration. In other words, celebrate, have fun, dress up, go out. Let the way you look reflect your inner disposition. If you're happy inward, you're not going to dress up as a slob. All right, maybe some of us will, myself included. But your sin has been taken away. How about that for a metaphor? You could dress in white because you've been made whiter than snow. You're free. You're innocent in God's eyes. So throw off your shame. Celebrate life. Don't forget to be happy. And don't forget your deodorant. Look what he says. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That's their deodorant. That was their perfume. That was their cologne. They would pour the oil of gladness on their hair to freshen up. Women would wear a stoppered vial of oil underneath their robes. And when they would unstopper it with that wax seal or that cork seal, they would dab it on their bodies. That was how they deodorized themselves in the ancient world. 
And this is how you would prepare for a party. This is how you go to a celebration. This is how the Jewish people got ready to have a good time. They would put on the oil. And so Christian, have fun. Enjoy life. This is wisdom speaking. But take it deeper a little bit because oil was a symbol in the Bible for the Spirit of God. So enjoy life by being filled with the Spirit. Walk with God as your closest friend. You can live life with the Spirit of wisdom who is closer than your brother, Proverbs says. You know that closer than your brother is meant for Jesus. There is a friend who is closer than your brother. Well, that friend is Jesus. Walk with the Spirit, you're walking with Jesus. That is the oil of happiness and gladness. And that will come out, that's your inner disposition. It will come out in celebration. It will be contagious to the community of God's people. Then he goes on, verse 9. How do you live your life today? Enjoy life with a wife whom you love. Reverse it if you're a woman with a husband that you love. All the days of your vain life. That just means brief. All the days of your brief life that he has given you under the sun. Now listen, here's the key to interpreting this. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So Solomon's saying, celebrate life with the one you've married. Laugh together. Have fun. Do new things. Be adventurous. Take advantage of the intimacy that you can have in marriage. All of this is what he's talking about. Go out on dates. Now let me ask you a question. Married couples, do you still date? Now, notice I didn't ask if every once in a while you go out to eat. That's really not so much, or it can be, not so much a date. Do you make that a time of true, intentional fellowship? My wife, one time at Red Robin, she got off the Internet. I don't even know if I should tell you this. Hmm. Probably not, right? I'm going to go ahead anyways, and then... Apologize to her. She got off the internet all these questions that have to do with what would you like to do to spice up the intimate part of marriage. And I'm like, in Red Robin, there's people right next to me. So we just went right into it. That's one of my best meals I've ever had. Pretty good date as well. Go out on dates. Do projects together. See your spouse as your partner in life. Love that person. Marital love and enjoyment go together. Because, listen, here's what it means, the portion. Because your portion in life, hear this, means that married life is not going to continue in heaven. I hate to break that to some of you that can't wait to be forever united with this person. That's not going to continue. There is no marriage in heaven. This is your portion. So make it the best it can be here on earth. That spouse is a gift from God to you for a limited time. So enjoy And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the grave. That means when you're dead to which you're going. So if your hand finds work to do, then God has given it to you. That's the perspective. If you've got a job, that's from God. It might not be your dream, God, but put your best effort into it even now. And you're going to begin reaping rewards for eternity. Death Sheol, it's coming. And there's no, not going to be another opportunity to store up rewards in eternity. 
So now create, find solutions, work hard, make friends, let your jobs be your mission field. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's an incredible paradigm shift that can wake up a perspective for work that is beautiful. See, there's an incentive that Solomon offers to live life today the right way. And it's a return to one of his constant themes. Death is coming for all of us. You cannot know when it's going to come. And you cannot prevent it. Look at verse 11. And again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift. Nor the battle to the strong. Nor bread to the wise. Nor riches to the intelligent. Nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. In other words, you can eat bales of kale, you can, eat, you can augment with your supplements, you can agonize and exercise, but death is going to arrive at your door. It is the great equalizer, it's the human assassin, and there's nothing that any of us could do to delay it or prevent it. No matter what you earn, verse 11, how righteous or wicked you are, how cleanly you live your life, you're going to die. The trap or the net will close suddenly on you. That's why he's using the fish and the bird, the net and the trap metaphor. It springs before you know it. Now, Kansas wrote a song that I'm sure most of us know called Dust in the Wind. It seems to be lifted straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It goes like this. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind, same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever, but the earth and sky it slips away. And all your money won't another minute buy. The guy that wrote that in Kansas is Kerry Livgren. He's a Christian. He wrote that in one night, brought it to the studio. They could not wait to record it. Because it's so true. This song resonates. We know this to be true. So Christian, what are we to do? How do we live wisely in this vain, brief life under the sun? Well, Solomon said it. Trust God with your tomorrow. He knows the day of your death. He will walk you through the valley when he decides it's your time. There's no reason to be anxious. Your heavenly father has you in his hand. So why? So what do you do with that? You enjoy your life today. You live as only the blood-bought children of God can. And the key to all of this, and don't hear this, this is literally my last line. But it's really the most important. The key to all of this, to trust God with your tomorrow and live life today, the key to it all is chapter 5. Guard your steps. Listen to God speak and humble your heart and worship. That's key to everything. You want to learn how to trust God with your tomorrow. You want to learn how to live your life today. It is worship. Worship your God and love him. And he will give you confidence for your future. And he will bring you to life in your today. Amen.